Let me just add my wish to you for a happy Easter, everyone, which is more accurately stated for us as Christians, happy Resurrection Sunday, right? That's what we celebrate. And if you're our guest, you are most welcome. I know that there's many of you that are our guests because you're family of our church family members. I have some of those here myself in town. You're most welcome. And if you're our neighbor and you're taking advantage of the Easter weekend to, to visit us and worship with us today, you are also most welcome and you are welcome back. You have stumbled into a very awesome, cool church family. The preaching's a little sketchy, but other than that, they, this, is, this family is awesome. And uh, I know it's tough going to a new church family. It's, it's, I just honor that. It's very courageous to, to go to someone else's living room and imagine that there's somehow you can be adopted and grafted in. But uh, we try to make that as easy as possible. So if you're looking for a church home, if you're online looking for a church home, I just want to really lift this one up to you because we really do try to live this out. We want your experience to be first and foremost God's love. And that's what we need. And that's what we try to deliver. So you've caught us in the middle of a teaching series that we've entitled, This is the Way, in which we're following the life and ministry and teachings and work of Jesus through one book of the Bible, the book of Luke. In your New Testament, there's four books that start it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all the same story. They all tell, did you know that? They all tell the, the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus and his work. And we're looking at the third one written by this guy named Luke. And so while it's typical for me, and it stands to reason that on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, I, I think all of my 18 Easter's here, I have always used a text a little bit farther in the book of Luke than we are today, or in one of those other gospels where we look at the death and resurrection of Jesus. But today we're doing a little different because of where we're at. We're going to be back in Luke chapter 9. And of course, the resurrection is the pinnacle milestone in the work of Christ and in the narrative of Luke as he presents the life of Jesus. But Luke 9 also has a very significant crescendo, big milestone. And not to leave Easter out, this is where he begins overtly and directly pointing his disciples to Easter. This is the point in Luke 9 where he announces to them who he is and and why he's here and he sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem to endure that cross in order to get to the resurrection. And so it's pretty pretty cool. So before I read to you the section of chapter 9, that's where we're going to be, I want you to kind of Join me in trying to feel what Luke has done as an author, okay? What the Holy Spirit has used Luke to build up to what's about to happen. So starting back in chapter 7, we're in chapter 9. Starting back in chapter 7, Luke has told the stories of Jesus and unfolded and revealed this Jesus in a way that the fir- it's lost on us because we just read it as scripture. But it's a, the first century reader, especially the Jewish reader, would have read these stories in a way where they have to get pretty excited. It's building up because he is sharing stories that fall right in line with the larger story from the Old Testament. This is clearly, this Jesus is a great prophet in line with all the great prophets of the people of God. I, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, and, and, and the Jews have had 400 years of silence. 400 years of not having God choose a great prophet and through whom he would come and help his people. 
Okay? 400 years. So this would be unbelievable and greatly welcomed. And so all of these stories in these last few chapters, he has been building up, explaining. The reader would have said, this is a great prophet. But he's added elements to these stories that, you know, from the, what Jesus did. He picked stories that add elements that the reader would also have to go, wait a minute. That, that's not in line with the great prophets. That's, that's something more. That's something awesome. That's something unheard of. That's something more. Who, who is this Jesus? That's the theme of these chapters that Luke's building up to. He's trying to get the reader to, to be built up and go, this is a great prophet. God has come to help his people. But wait, wait. The, that's not prophetish. That's, that's more. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? So let me, before we get to our text for today, let me try to give you the cliff notes of, of how I've seen Luke do this as we studied in the way we have, okay, through, through chapter 7 up to 9. So he starts in chapter 7, recording where Jesus heals this Roman military leader's beloved servant from a deathly sickness, and then he doubles down and he shares this story of where he comes to a funeral procession and this, son, this only son of this widow lady, leaving her in a precarious social position, he's died. And so he raises this boy from the dead. And then Luke says, he puts these words in the people. It says, they were filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us. You see it? They said, God has come to help his people. He then goes into the story of John the Baptist, who's in prison by King Herod. And John the Baptist asks his version in the narrative of, who are you, Jesus? Who are you? By sending a couple of his servants, because he's in prison, King Herod's jail. These servants come, and they say, we have this message from John. He says, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Who, who are you? I, I thought I knew. Do I? Are you that one? And Jesus mysteriously doesn't answer directly. Instead, he turns around with these messages. He turns around. He heals some sickness over here. He cures some disease here. Here's some blind folks. He gives them sight. And then he turns back around to these messengers. And he says, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor, the lowest in society. Then he shows Jesus at a formal dinner with a religious leader, a prestigious religious leader. And this sinful woman comes into this dinner and inappropriately and provocatively, out of gratitude and love for Jesus, anoints Jesus' feet with oil. And the host scoffs at both of them. The woman, because she's a sinner, and this great prophet, because if he knew what kind of woman was touching him, he, he's not a great prophet, or he would know. He would know. Jesus then steps in, confronts this great religious leader, for looking down on this woman as if he's not a sinner and also lifts her up and protects her honor and her dignity. And if that wasn't enough, he then turns and looks at this sinful woman and says what no man has the right to say. No great prophet has the right to say with the authority he said it. He looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. 
It's lost on it. This is huge in the narrative here. And Luke puts into the mouth of the other guests in verse 49, the other guests began to say among themselves, here's our question, who is this who even forgives sins? You feel it? He's, he's building up suspense. He then records Jesus on a boat in a legit life-threatening storm with his disciples who are master fishermen. They know how to, to sail. And Jesus commands the whole storm to stop and it does. The storm stops. The waves calm. And then Luke records, in fear and amazement, they asked each other, who is the question, who is this? Do you see it? It's all through here. Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. He then records Jesus commanding a legion of demons out of a man, and the legion leaves. He then goes to a he then records a woman who has suffered this uncontrollable and socially ostracizing bleeding for 12 years and just by getting through the crowd and touching the hem of his garment healing comes rushing into her and her whole life is changed and then he records a, a father coming to Jesus and this 12 year old girl is deathly ill and he's on his way to heal her when she dies at the house he's not there in time so He resurrects her from the dead and gives her back to the Father. He then records these 12 disciples who are watching all of this. He sends them out on their own little missionary journey, their own little mission trip, and empowers them to do what he's been doing. The power that this man has. And this this is spreading. The power is spreading. And it has reached all the way to the place that you wouldn't want it to reach. And that's the palace where King Herod is. And now Luke records in that palace, Herod asks the question, Who then is this I hear such things about? He then records the 12 returning from this mission trip. And of course, the palace isn't the only one that heard it. The people, the needy, the sick, they've heard it. 5,000 people have followed them back to that rest. And so they minister to them all day and they've got a food problem. And these, these folks are out in the wilderness. They're nowhere close to the stores or the bakeries or the kitchens. And so the guys say, send them home. But Jesus takes like five pieces of bread and a couple of fish. That's all they had. He Praise to God about it, and they proceed to feed all 5,000 people with, these, with this little bitty meal with plenty left over. You feel it? Who is this man? He's setting up the reader. He's setting him up. He's, he's about to answer. He's finally going to reveal who this Jesus is. But I wanted you to know, in his first century way, What he's doing, he's building up the reader's need to know. His curiosity, he's not just a great prophet. So who is he? As I was preparing for this, this whole thing reminded me, what Luke's doing reminded me of a character in an old movie that I used to love. It's it's, uh, called A Knight's Tale. Some of you might be old enough to know that. And and so Heath Ledger was a character in this movie, and he was this commoner that made his way into the jousting arena, okay, which is reserved for people of noble birth. That's the whole storyline, okay? But, but all I need you to know is that each night when they're in their armor and they're ready to joust, before it happens, before you're even revealed as to who the opponents are, they each have a herald. 
And the herald, this is who Luke reminds me of, the herald comes out and his job is to build anticipation for the revelation of who this knight is under that armor. He's supposed to tell the stories of character and amazement, the feats of strength, the titles, the accomplishments, and then he reveals. That's where it builds up in crescendos. This is what Luke is reminding me of. And I got that clip. I found that clip. So I want you to just, because I know I'm not doing a good job of building the emotion. So connect to this and connect it to Luke. Watch this. So you see what he's doing. His job is to build up the introduction to who this is. Luke to this point has been that herald. And he uses this, an exchange between Jesus and his disciples in a private prayer time that they were having together to finally answer the question that the reader would be leading, leaning forward wanting to know. It's in Luke 9, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Now pause here. The crowds at least get the first part. There's something supernatural going on here with this Jesus guy. He is some great prophet. When we are asked, he lists a bunch of dead people. John the Baptist has been killed by Herod at this point, And they think maybe he's come back from the dead. Maybe it is one of the great prophets. Elijah, come back from the dead. One of those others from long ago, back from the dead. They believe something supernatural is going on. But that is not elevated enough. And Jesus is asking these disciples, do they know? Have they grasped? Because they're not going to be able to move forward with what his mission is. As this kingdom bringer, the way he's going to bring it, they're not going to understand. They're not even going to accept it unless they lift him higher than a great prophet. So he asks them. He's testing these guys that I've poured into who have been with me for all of these stories. Do they understand who I am? He says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. See, it sounds anticlimactic to you and me, but this would have been huge. This would have been the anointed one is the proper word there. He's the Christ, the anointed one of God that they've been waiting for. This is the one, the Messiah, the King that everyone's been waiting for that's going to change everything. It's going to make everything new. It is if Luke, from Luke 7 to Luke 9, right here, he's saying, here he is. Here he is, the healer of six servants, the restorer of dead sons to widows and dead daughters to fathers, the proclaimer of good news to even the poor, the giver of sight to the blind and sound to the deaf, the healer of the lame and of lepers, the protector of the dignity of even sinners, the confronter of prideful man and the lifter of humble women, the commander of demonic legions and wind and waves, the feeder of the hungry, the forgiver of sins and the empowerer of others to do these very things that he does, the one, the only, the Christ, the Holy One, the anointed one of God. I cannot elevate and high enough with my heralding, how high Jesus is being announced here. And if that wasn't enough, these, these profound 
content-filled words placed in the mouth of Peter. Look at what he does just a few verses later to double down on his glory. It says in verse 28 of Luke 9, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, show up. They appeared in their glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke of his departure, pointing forward to Easter. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him, Moses and Elijah. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he is saying. Pause. We know what he was saying. He was saying, that's Moses, who represents the law, the law, we call it the law of Moses. That's Elijah, one of the greatest prophets. He represents the prophets, the law and the prophets. That's Moses and Elijah, great characters from the past, the greatest, the most esteemed. Jesus, you're with them. Let us create three tabernacles. This is how high you are. You're equal with the law. You're equal with the prophets. And he doesn't know what he's saying. And God knows he doesn't know what he's saying because he interrupts him while he's saying it. To say, you're insulting my son. And declaring him his son, he says, when he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. They were very afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. It is as if Luke is picking stories to double down on the glory of Jesus. He's saying, think of the most esteemed people that you can think of, even by God's economy. That's Moses, that's Elijah. And then just try to put Jesus in company with them. But you need to do something. You need to add lightning. You need to add a cloud. And you need to add the voice of the Most High God saying, he's mine. He's my son. He's the chosen one. He's not a group of chosen ones. He's the chosen ones. You're listening to the law? No, listen to him. You have him now. You need not mess around with anything else. And do not put him in such esteemed company as great prophets. That's too low. He's doubling down. So after Peter correctly declares who Jesus is. He says, you're the Christ. What would Jesus follow up with? What would, I mean, he's got them. He's got them on the hook for their very profound, somewhat bold, very vulnerable confession. You proclaim that you're the one, you're the anointed one, you're the holy one of God. Okay, you're that one. Then whatever he says next, you can't argue with. Jesus knew they would need to put him that high to receive and accept him as the king bringing the kingdom. The nature of the kingdom that they thought he was going to bring was totally different than the nature of the kingdom he was going to bring. And so what does he say? Right after they make this confession, he immediately points them to Easter. He immediately points them to his consummating work, to the kind of kingdom this is. 
It says in verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. He points right to the crucifixion and right to the resurrection. And they have to swallow that whole because of who they now confess that he is. This is not the kind of kingdom they were expecting. From this moment forward in the story, he will continue to declare what it means for Jesus to be the chosen, anointed son of God, the holy one, the Christ. And rather than rule a kingdom like every other kingdom tried to rule, rather than conquer like every other kingdom tries to conquer to this day, okay, rather than do that, he is suggesting that he's going to conquer differently, making the very nature of the kingdom that he's the Lord over different. He's going to rule differently by dying and resurrecting. Whatever his kingdom is, that's the nature of it. That's how he accomplish it. That's how he's going to deliver his kingdom. So it leaves us with the same question that those disciples would have had. What does this mean? We don't, reorienting, what, what does it mean then? What's life about? What's, we have the question of Easter. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? There's a lot. There's a lot of this world implications to the resurrection of Jesus. We learn that as we study it, as we live it. And we've seen some demonstrated here. These are in this world things in his little heralding list. Healing, hope, second chances, right? Even the cheating of death happens in this world on occasion. We need to be quick to remind ourselves that's temporary. Even when death is cheated, it's temporary. We need a bigger solution than this. But there are this world implications when we think of the power of the resurrection. But it's not just this world. Paul, when he's developing the theology for us about what the resurrection means, he says in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pretty more than all men. Okay, enjoy your little brief 70, 80 years. But you, you're to be pitied more than all men if that's all we got. Do kingdom principles and kingdom messages and resurrection power affect things in this life? Yeah, but if that's it, just woohoo, woohoo, yeah, that's great. We should be pitied more than all men. The real power and message of the death and resurrection of Jesus is that there is another life other than this one. That's the power of the resurrection. There is another life. It's bigger, weightier, transcendent. It matters more than this life. It's the resurrection of Jesus that declares this. And you are invited to believe in it and live for it. It's called an eternal one. It goes beyond that grave that sometimes gets cheated temporarily. Paul unpacks it more, really elevating the, the, the meaning of the resurrection and the importance as he says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And keep in mind, some in this time had witnessed Jesus raised. So that was a foregone conclusion. He's been raised. 
If there's no resurrection dead, then you're saying Jesus wasn't raised? And someone would have to go, we saw him. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and here's the worst part, you are still in your sins. You know what that means? Death. That means death, the ultimate kind. He says, then those, and here's the bad news for those who have loved ones who've gone on. I think that's everyone in here. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ are actually lost. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? He says it in the positive in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came from a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. What's he talking about? He says, for as in Adam all die because of Adam's sin, so in Christ we're all made alive because of his dying for our sin. But each in his own turn. Here's the real good news in the resurrection. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what the resurrection means. That there's a larger story. Yeah, there's tons of benefits to kingdom living and resurrection power delivered to us through the Holy Spirit in this life. I believe that the kingdom life is the best possible quality of life that you can have, and it has nothing to do with sickness and cancer and horrible things. It has has nothing to do with that. It goes beyond that. It transcends that. It makes it full of peace and joy and hope and all those things Kyle listed in spite of that because we live in this larger story. That even those things, I I have most pity for cancer because only in this life can it do anything. I have the most pity for things in this world that try to attack us because only in this life does it help. Well, any power, we live in a larger one. That's what the resurrection says. The power of the death and resurrection of Jesus is that Jesus took all of that sin on the cross and it would be useless if it stopped there. But the resurrection consummates what he did. He died for our sin, but then he defeated death. He defeated death. And the resurrection means we have access, not just to the best possible life now, but to that larger life. That larger life that I think you don't even have to go to the Bible. I think your heart knows there's more going on here than this life. When we get in the quiet and still of our humanity, We feel it. We sense it. It's like it's implanted in our heart. There is a verse for that. The Bible says that eternity has been placed in your heart. That eternity is in your heart. There's something in us that knows death is wrong. It's wrong. I want to finish up here. I want to ask, we do this every week, but for those of you who are guests, our ministers and our elders and their spouses are going to get up right now and they're just going to move around the room and they're going to station themselves in the balcony and in the back and up here in the front. If there's anything going on, they just want you to know, hey, these aren't perfect people. They're just people who love Jesus and they, they're willing to love you. And if anything is going on that you need a prayer about or if you want to learn more about this Jesus, these folks are saying, I'm with you. I'm, I'm your guy. I'm your girl. Please come to me. So here, and here's the deal. The invitation to follow Jesus, never forget this. The invitation to follow Jesus is not about adopting some hard, horrible, difficult set of religious rules that if you follow well enough or if you're moral enough, you might get into heaven. That, that's not in the Bible anywhere. It's not there. The invitation to follow Jesus 
is the invitation to live in this larger story. And again, it's one that I believe every one of our hearts tell us is true. For any of you who've lost somebody painfully, even, even a dog, you lose a precious dog. I mean, your heart hurts. It's, it's like an injury. It like feels wrong, doesn't it? It feels, death feels wrong. You don't have to be spiritual. You don't have to be anything. It feels wrong. It's painful. There's something in our heart that tells us it's not right. It's not right. And if, if, if something doesn't come and save us, it ruins the rest of our life. Because you can't get it back. You can't get love that person back when they die. It's like our own hearts testify to the reality that there's something more going on, that there is a larger story. And the invitation of all Jesus is to not only just believe that there is a larger story, but to know that there is something for that hurt. There is something for that death. Our hearts, our minds, our souls are telling us the same thing that Easter tells us, that the resurrection tells us, that we aren't really supposed to die. You ever thought of it like that? That's how the story started. Garden of Eden, they were never supposed to die. Sin brought death. Our hearts have that echo, that eternity is in our hearts. We know we need the message of Easter. Look, the question's for you too, just like Jesus did for them. It's for you. Dimitri reminded us of this. He said, who is he? Who is he to you? Who do you say he is? Just a great teacher? Okay. Take his great teachings. Apply them to your life. I think your life will be better. But if only for this life, you follow Christ, you're still to be most pitied. And it's not because it's not beneficial. It is. It's because there's so much more. It's because there's so much more. It's so much better than that. It goes for eternity. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? If you do, based on that belief, you are forgiven of your sins and you're a member of a kingdom that infects and impacts your life now but steals death and just turns it for believers into another birth. How much joy is there at the birth of someone? That's what death is for you. If you will follow Jesus and you're a member of this kingdom of Easter, this kingdom of the resurrection. If you want to know more, we're learning more all the time. And we would love for you to join us in that journey. Come to any of us. Let's stand and let's sing of this great God and happy Easter, church. Happy Easter.